the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the second hour of the Jimmy Sangenberger Show here on News Talk 710-KNUS. Good to be with you as always. Moving ahead full steam in the next hour. We will speak with Keith Nobles, longtime military intelligence contractor during particularly the last decade of the Cold War. We will get his perspective one year in to the war in Ukraine here on the program. I always appreciate Keith's insights. He's got a unique perspective. Looking forward to having him on the show in an hour. But we are sticking with the local topics here this morning as we have here in studio a candidate for mayor joining us on the program. I am very pleased to have in studio former Colorado State Senator Mike Johnston again running for mayor of Denver. And boy, would that be a massive undertaking to be sure. (laughs) Mike, welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be here this morning. Appreciate you having me. Good to have you here. I, I appreciate you joining us and delving into discussion. Let's just start right from the top. Who is Mike Johnston? And why the heck are you running for mayor of Denver, <laughs> given everything going out of the world today? That was about the same question my wife asked, too. Um, uh, yeah, great to be with you. Um, I have spent the last you know 20 years serving this city in different ways. I started my career here as a school principal in Denver. So I actually uh, served kids in a juvenile detention center down here at the Foot Center. I ran a school that served kids who were in and out of state custody, had been removed from their homes for physical or sexual abuse. And then I, I turned around a high school up in Adams County, uh, up in Thornton, uh, what you used to be Skyview High School for folks who live up that side. Uh, and we took it from a school that had a 50% dropout rate into what became the first public high school where 100% of our kids were all uh, admitted to four-year colleges and graduated. And so uh, that took me into politics. I was in the state Senate for about two terms. Uh, and then after that, I've been out of politics the last four or five years. I've been the uh, CEO of a foundation here in town called Gary Ventures, focusing on a lot of the issues that are really important to kids and families statewide. So we've done things like the universal preschool measure. We did the repeal of the Gallagher Amendment in 2020, which was a really oppressive tax on business, um, and then worked on the affordable housing and homelessness issue over the last couple of years, including Proposition 123 last year. So I've been deeply engaged in uh, the issues affecting Denver. And I think the closest I, I got to those, the more I saw the issues of homelessness and housing in Denver, the more I both broke my heart to see it and realized these are actually very solvable problems. We don't have to just stay on this ride and end up in San Francisco or Portland or Seattle. There's a way to actually uh, turn the tide on this before we keep going the way we're heading now. You've got, what, I think 17 candidates who will be on the ballot, <laughs> plus an additional handful that are write-ins, but really 17 candidates yeah, are on I the ballot. Yeah, I met one candidate for the first time two days ago. It's like they're still meeting new candidates, so it is you a know, little kooky. You know, I think there's, like, when you factor in the write-ins, you could replace the Denver Broncos defense <laughs> and offense together with the candidates running for mayor. We might be better than the offense, but I wouldn't take our chances on the defense. Fair enough, <laughs> absolutely. But when we look at this field, you got a lot of candidates. What sets Mike Johnston apart? 
part? Yeah, uh, I think it is uh, someone who has led large and complex organizations. I've been a CEO. I, I ran a company that many of you might know called COVID Check. Which is if you ever got a COVID test uh, through the pandemic, we did that. Um, uh, I think that uh, it's running and leading large organizations. It's the ability to have a big vision for where the city can go, and it's the ability to bring together really diverse coalitions uh, to be able to solve hard problems. I think that's what the city needs. Uh, and you need someone who can both uh, be a voice for all of the city. This is a nonpartisan race, which I love, and it's a nonpartisan job because you serve every resident in the city of Denver, and that means you got to be able to build coalitions all over. I think that's something I've spent a lot of my life doing from time as a principal to an entrepreneur to a CEO to a state senator. You mentioned during your open about homelessness and housing. I mean, we are seeing a massive crisis in our communities um, in the, throughout the Denver metro area, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, what do you fundamentally attribute the crisis of homelessness in particular to at this point, and what were the couple of things that you think most significantly will help to address it? Yeah, you bet. And this is really one of the major reasons I'm running for mayor. This is my number one issue. And I think there are three things we see as a factors here that cause this problem. One is obviously the dramatically increasing cost of housing. That is true all across the metro area. The second is, I think, the real failure of, a, of our statewide mental health infrastructure. We closed all the places that did really long-term mental health support, so that doesn't exist. And I think the failure of our uh, drug policies and our uh, support for people who are addicted means you have all three of those crises overlapping at once in the streets. The good news is there are real solutions that work here. And what I think the mistake people make is believing either you got to let people keep sleeping in tents around the streets, which I think is not the right answer, or you got to build everybody a single family home, which is also not the answer. That costs, you know, $500,000 and takes three years and doesn't, doesn't, that's not a, a real path right now. So what I proposed is building uh, micro communities, which are essentially half acre lots where you can put 40 to 50 tiny homes on those sites. In those sites, you have all the wraparound services you need. You got security, you got mental health, you got addiction treatment, you got workforce training. People are getting the skills they need to get up and employed again. Um, and it also allows you then to be able to, to move people from encampments to these communities uh, as a community. Right now, the challenge is if you build one unit at a time, you're going into an encampment with 10 people and trying to get one person from that community to leave and take a new spot without supports across town, and they don't succeed in that structure. If you open a community with 40 or 50 units at once, you can go to two or three blocks around Union Station, move all three or four of those uh, encampments with people in them to this new community where it's now safe, stable, supervised, um, supported, and that's a very, very different success rate. Uh, and so I think that's what we w would do as mayor, and that's what we should do. And I think if we do that, we know the results show you get demonstrably better results. I don't you need, though, the to, to move folks, say, from encampments into the tiny home community that you're describing, don't you need them to have a willingness to do that? Because we hear a lot of talk. I've had other candidates on who've, who've addressed this, and such as the, and, and the mayor of, of Aurora, Mike Kaufman, has been on the program many times talking about this, where you have some folks who is more of a lifestyle living in these encampments and, and that sort of thing. Um, would you force them to go into these tiny homes? How would you approach that and address the issue of clean uh, of the of the sweeps when it comes to the encampments and so forth? Yeah, this is a question that I think a lot of people have had, and fortunately, we have some good data on it. Because the question was, will people take? these kind of options if they're available. And we did this a couple of years ago with the hotel conversion, slightly different model. Um, and we had 300 units. And we went out to the streets and said to people, you know, would you want to take a, a hotel unit if you had one? And 800 people signed up for those slots. So we have more than almost three times the amount of spots we had. Uh, those folks all were delighted, moved voluntarily. And of the 300 that moved, you know, 
86% of those were still housed a year later. You know, so the idea that people either wouldn't want the services or wouldn't take them, I think we found to not be true. And um, these are the encampments. Specifically. Yeah, these are people. These are people mm-hmm. in encampments living unsheltered on the streets. Uh, and I think what what happens is people what people don't sometimes want is the current shelter experience. When you say, "Oh, you're living in a camp, why not go to a shelter?" Well, you know, those shelters can be dangerous. They can be, you know, um, there are open drug use there. There can be fights there. I mean, those are... Encampments, too. In both of those places. So I think there are folks who don't want what they'd call congregate, you know, shelter, which is the... 50 dudes in a in gymnasiums sleeping at night. Um, and so I think, but this is a very different offer, which when you have a room of your own with a locked door and a bed and a cot and uh, services, uh, people overwhelmingly are saying yes would, to those offers. Would you require for moving into these communities um, drug tests and things along those lines to, to, to ensure that they're getting treatment in exchange for having that kind of housing provided? Because fundamentally for those who aren't choosing this as any sort of lifestyle, there's something that tends to be going on. If it's not just a financial issue, there's often with mental health or drug use or something of that nature. You need, in my view, to make sure that they are getting help and not just living there. Yep. So I, I had the chance to travel the country for about two years and look at the very best models on this. And a lot of them were run by the Catholics. I, I was raised a Catholic. And so uh, I went and visited their site in Austin. And I thought, okay, for sure, I'm going to go to this Catholic site. And these folks are going to be no nonsense. And I talked to the guy who started the whole place. And he said, uh, we tried that. And we just realized that it d- didn't work as the first step. So they don't have a, the best programs in this country. Most of the ones run by Catholic f- and faith leaders don't have a sobriety requirement to come in the door. Um, what they do have is all the push-in services to provide that treatment as soon as folks arrive on site. And what they find is once you're safe, once you're stabilized, once you've got a room that locks and you're not worried about being preyed on every night and you, have a ch- and, you have a, you know, and you have a chance to catch your breath, you're far more likely to accept the treatment. A lot of focus on workforce training and getting people up and employed. And in some of these sites, you know, 20 30% of people are back employed uh, in the first month. And so there is a pretty good indication that once you're there, your willingness to get into workforce and to get uh, clean is significantly increased. But there is not a requirement to get in the front door, which I was surprised by. But as now I've looked, I've yet to find a place that's really successful that has done that. Mike Johnston, our guest, candidate for mayor of Denver. Let's shift gears. This is tied in, I think, to at least some extent with the issue of homelessness because it brings in drugs. It brings in um, other things that come about, and that is crime. I mean, we see massive spikes in crime here in Denver, and it is uh, ranking higher and higher, if not top, in so many things from auto thefts. I'm a three-time victim of auto thefts <laughs> since 2020, by you the way. You beat me. I'm only, been, I'm only a two-time victim. Only so two. You're, you're only two. Yes. Right. And, of course, you see violent crime that has been going up dramatically, robberies, um, gang violence, including among youths. We'll talk more about that because I'm curious about SROs in a moment, but... When it comes to crime, what's your take on the on the state of Denver and what can be done to address it? Yeah, and I might start by your your, your other question of like, are people attracted to the this culture? Uh, and I think what we find is the benefit of creating these micro communities and moving people to safe, stable places where they have wraparound staff and supports is those are very healthy, stable environments. People that are chasing a lifestyle of you know open air drug use and human trafficking and what happens sometimes in encampments now are not attracted to that lifestyle. They're attracted to what exists now currently on the streets. And when you change that dynamic, I think there's not a magnet for uh, folks 
folks that are looking for trouble. I think now it becomes a magnet for folks who are actually trying to get their lives back together, and that's that's those are folks who are delighted to help. Um, but yes, on the crime issue, uh, it is a it is a major problem, and people I hear it every night in town halls all across the city of Denver, and people that are very progressive on a lot of issues are still very very concerned about their safety in the city. It's a very real dynamic, and so a couple things I would do. Um, one is I, I do think we uh, we need more. I call them first responders on the street because right now that all, that includes officers for sure. We need about 200 more first responders and include a lot more officers. It includes uh, mental health responders. It includes EMTs. If you got someone in a mental health crisis, the cops will tell me first time, we don't want to be the ones responding to that. We ought to send a mental health responder. If you got someone who's in an overdose, no, you don't want to send a cop to that. You want to send an EMT. Um, so you do need that. That means more visibility, more presence. I think people say to me all the time, like, why don't uh, we want to see more cops in our neighborhood? We want them to be visible. And and we want to have real relationships with them. We want the olden days where people actually walk the beat and knock community on doors. We want community-based mm-hmm. policing. Give someone my business card. Like when I talk to business owners, they said, I want two cops who I know who give me their card, check on my business every day, ask me if I have any questions. And yes, when one of my employees gets assaulted outside of the business, I know exactly who to call. I'm not calling and getting put on hold or getting an answer that says, sorry, we can't respond because it's not life-threatening. That's not good enough for Denver. So I think that is, is the first step. Um, I think there's a lot more we can do on prevention and intervention early on, particularly with young people. I obviously was a school principal for a long time, so I'm focused on how you keep kids out of the high-risk decisions they can make when they get in trouble. Um, But I also think we can adjust what our criminal justice system does. Right now, I would take two pods of the county jail and convert them, one into long-term mental health facility and one into long-term addiction treatment, because right now we are seeing these frequent flyers who go from you know, the streets to the emergency room to jail and back without actually getting the treatment they need to get healthy. Sure. And we got to realize that's what we're expecting our prisons to do because there's not really any good mental health treatment facilities out there that, that have the staffing or the resources. So uh, if you change the whole pipeline, you can actually get people that need to be in treatment into treatment and folks that need to be uh, uh, incarcerated and incarcerated. Now, uh, when it comes to providing support for law enforcement, um, clearly there are a variety of things to do, but one of them sometimes is rhetorical support. I mean, you have morale, and this is the case in police forces all across the state and country that are demoralized, that uh, don't feel like they have support. And of course, I know of nobody who doesn't acknowledge that there needs to be some reforms and changes in police policing, law enforcement, how they operate, what have you, and new training mechanisms and so forth. But we've we've seen such a such an extreme on the other side, or at least that's what seems to be the most prominent voices that are bashing on law enforcement as opposed to providing them with some support and giving them uh, backing them up when they need to enforce the law. Talk to me about that from your vantage point. Yeah, I think you said it. I think both things are true. We need to reform the way we prepare and support officers, and that includes you know how we train them and how we um, how we support them on site. I always think about you know as a school principal, my job was to learn you know when a kid came up and cursed at me in the hallway was to learn how to de-escalate a kid, right? Not how to escalate a kid. And sometimes officers, the chief used to tell me this, they're trained in the opposite. As soon as you get a little bit of attitude for someone, you're trained to come over the top and come right back at them more aggressively. Some people that works for, some people that really doesn't. I, I knew the kids that would swing at me if I did that when, I, when, they were, when they were heated. And so it is a matter of that training and support. But the nice thing is, you know, I talked to an officer the other day who's 20 years in the force, retired and left, became a realtor. And he said, my favorite part of the job was 20 years ago 
when I was doing community policing. They actually gave me a beat. I walked the neighborhood. I knew people. They liked me. I liked them. We had a sense of, of a relationship. I think the nice thing is the officers want back that kind of relationship the same way the community members do. Uh, and so I think there is an opportunity to do that where people feel both grateful for the people that are there to serve and protect, mm-hmm. and they feel like they are really being protected and not being policed sometimes. Let's- Let's bridge this issue with schools um, yes. from your education background, specifically school resource officers, which were removed from DPS schools in 2020, um, particularly the high schools. And then in 2021, there was a discipline matrix put into place that severely restricted the instances with uh, or through which or um, when the circumstances when a uh, say. DPS safety officer can call in the police. So those two things have, in my view, contributed dramatically to this surge in crime, violent crime. We saw what happened East High School 20 minutes later, Emily Griffith um, campus, where you had just outside, you had shootings that happened. And one student at East is in critical condition. I, I think this, the absence of school resource officers has a lot to do this. I wrote with this. I wrote a column about it for uh, D- the Denver Gazette on Wednesday. What about school resource officers? Yeah, I believe that principals ought to be able to decide if they want school resource officers, and those that want them should be able to to have them. I had a great superintendent, Charlotte Chancho, when I was in, in Mapleton, um, and she did that. You know, we had school resource officers. I had one for a while. And then she said, you know what, we'll let school by school decide. We realized there might be some elementary or middle schools that don't want some. There might be some high schools that do or don't. We had a time when we had one. We had a time when we chose not to, and we had a social worker instead because we knew the population of kids we had, and that was the most important need. But I do think that shouldn't be a top-down decision from the district. I think that should be a school-by-school decision. And frankly, when parents and parents can go to their principal and say, hey, my kids don't feel safe here. We need this. And so I think that should be a school-by-school choice. It also means we got to do much more intervention. I mean, my wife's a district attorney, has been in Denver for 15 years. She's been seeing this crime wave coming for years and saying people don't see this, but there is going to be a major spike in adolescent crime. Um, and what we know is when you get a – you know, they caught another kid at East High School with a weapon after that yep, shooting. Yep, they did two days later. What we know is when you have a 13- or a 14- or a 15-year-old who is stopped with a gun um, – in any situation, even if it's not yet violent, the risk of that student either being the victim of crime or the perpetrator of a murder three, four years from now is incredibly high. And right. so you have to take that risk very, very seriously. And that means heavy intervention with that child, with that family, with all the interactions, uh, because those are the kind of red flags you got to see and find people and support them before the challenges get worse. One of the things in from the folks that I have talked to, safety folks, law enforcement, when you look at school resource officers, there's the campus security aspect, but there's also, especially with the rise in gang activity among youth, SROs are plugged in directly into the law enforcement system in a way that DPS safety isn't. So they're able to gather intel, they're able to follow sort of relationships that are, and develop relationships that can get them more information and they can access Uh, law enforcement resources and vice versa. Law enforcement can tap into SROs. And we've seen dramatic increase in gang activity, which, by the way, when you have a kid show up with with a gun, I think there's good reason to think, okay, why is this here? And are they maybe trying to intimidate another student? What's happening? And you need to be able to develop 
answers to those questions and be plugged in with law enforcement. And that's something that's deeply concerning to me as I've looked into this more and more. Yeah, there has to be a much closer relationship. <clears throat> I, I lived, uh, I, I sorry, I worked in uh, North Park Hill for 10 years. I had an office in the Holly, which is, was then one of the highest mm-hmm. gang violence neighborhoods in the city. And so we, you know, we had shootings at our office and we had a lot of young people who were trying to get out of that lifestyle and trying to get their lives back together. And, and yeah, what, what you find is the ability to know early on who those kids who are who are at risk, who are in their networks, who are the positive support networks they have, who are the pastors or the coaches or the others that you can mm-hmm. talk to to help rally those those kids uh, to be successful are important, and to know who the negative peer groups are in their life is really important and how to try to keep them away from those. And so that's sometimes a great social worker does that, sometimes a great school principal or teacher does that, but sometimes a really engaged community officer who knows the, the landscape also can do that. And we had a really good partnership between the District 2 officers there and community leaders who felt like they were working together to do that. And I think they've they've turned around a lot of the results in North Park Hill in a way that we haven't seen in other areas. And so there are examples of that happening. But yes, you do need close communication between all the adults and that kid's life. And sometimes one of those adults is, a, is an officer. Real quick, do you think if the DPS folks on the board were to say, we are going to authorize the return of school resource officers, maybe with a memorandum of understanding kind of agreement that sets some of the terms, and then they open it up. Principals, you get to decide at the high school level if you want them or not. Do you think most high school principals at this point would probably say yes? It's a good question. I would bet after the event at East last week, you'd see a lot more high school principals say yes. Um, and because, right, that's every principal's worst fear is that one of their kids is getting shot outside of, of their own school. Um, and so uh, I, I haven't talked to them, so I'd have to ask. But I think uh, I think a lot of them would say yes. I think a lot of that depends as a principal. It's what kind of relationship can you build with the officer? Because you obviously don't want kids feeling intimidated or threatened in your own hallways. But the right great officer who knows how to build relationships with kids uh, and keep the mm-hmm. school safe can be a good addition. And so uh, I think there are some schools that might say no, but I think probably a lot would say yes after last week. Mike Johnston and joining us here in studio, running for mayor of Denver. We're going to take a break. We'll be back on the other side. One more segment with Mike Johnston here on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. Keep it right here. Denver's local talk leader, News Talk 710 KNUS. Muddy Waters with the great Little Walter on harmonica there. One of the, Little Walter that is, one of the great Black Blues Harmonica Pioneers, as we pay tribute to them on this, the last Saturday of Black History Month on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. And, of course, there's so much going on that often makes you disheartened in Denver that sometimes you would like some things to just trouble you no more. Mike Johnston joining us here in studio. He is running for mayor of Denver. It sounds like you you did... You dig yourself a little blues. I do. I mean, I'm not as much of an expert as you are. I'm very impressed. We got a little awesome harmonica riff during the break, which was uh, which was great bonus for the morning. You know, there's nothing like a little food for the soul, which is music. <laughs> you is know, right. gotta, gotta love it. Let's get back to education. And I'm appreciating the discussion with you today. Um, we talked a little bit about the school resource officers question. Right now, we are seeing in Denver, across the state, we are seeing plummeting student achievement. You can attribute some of that to COVID, but if you look at the trends, you can see that we were on a downward trajectory even before the COVID pandemic shutdown policies and so forth. Um, what What is your take, especially as someone who comes from an education background, on what we are seeing in schools and Mayor is not in charge of the school district. There's an independently elected school board. 
But what role would you take as mayor in helping to improve academic achievement for students? Yeah, I think this. There is no denying the fact that the uh, I think the school board's leadership has been uh, a real problem for the city, and I think that many people see it as an embarrassment in this moment where you have adults who are supposed to be governing a district who have to have other adults supervise them to be able to meet in public together. Right. That's not a good model for adults, let alone for the ninety thousand children who are looking to you to be leaders. And so I think that's you can't have a great city without a great school district. That is really true. I think there are, you know, I think we have dual crises facing this district right now too that I would take on. One is academic learning loss for sure after COVID. The other is a real burgeoning mental health crisis among adolescents. And I think those are places where the city can play a role. So the two things I would do is one is there is a whole lot to do in um, closing those learning gaps and what happens after school. You know, you think a lot of us with kids, if your kids fall behind in math, you get your kid a tutor. Or if your kid's really interested in science, you take them to science camp or you put them in a robotics club. Right now, we know families that can't afford to pay for those services are missing out on all that opportunity. So some of the gaps that are growing are not just what's happening during the school day, but what happens after school and on summer. So I would expand a program we launched as a pilot where you would allow uh, students on free and reduced lunch or students who have need to get access to after school and summer school programming that they would choose in the areas where they needed support, whether it was math or reading or science or whatever it might be, to help try to close those gaps. You can have educators do that. You can have nonprofits or community organizations do that. That's a big one. The second is we do have to have a much more active hand in, in mental health. We know right now that's a crisis across kids in the DBS system, and there aren't enough resources to do that. Talk to Denver Health right now. They do some school-based health clinics, but the wait lists are far, far longer than what we have the ability to support and a lot of kids that are are facing mental health needs they can't get met and so i would also uh, expand that ability to grow more school-based health centers that can do that and get those counselors in place and the benefit jimmy there is like once you deepen the partnership with the district in these ways yes we don't formally oversee them the superintendent doesn't report to me but we do fund uh, the services and we partner on a lot of the projects and i think the more of a real partnership there is between the city and the school district the easier it is for me as the mayor to be able to really use the bully pulpit to push on keeping them focused on things they're there to do which is support teachers and principals in in teaching and learning mike johnston you alluded a moment ago to the dysfunction let's just put it out there as as very clearly the dysfunction that we have seen among leaders in denver public schools particularly on the school board and when we look at Mayor Hancock, there have been a couple of times where things have been so troubled that he's actually said, okay, I'm going to use my bully pulpit and I'm going to blatantly call out, clearly call out the school board for their failures. How would you try to use your role as mayor to help hold the board to accountable, especially we are seeing so many, whether you are on the right or you are on the left, Parents are understandably not satisfied and they are fed up with this dysfunction that we have seen in Denver public schools that is inhibiting the ability of teachers to do their jobs well and the principals to get their schools in order and just academic achievement to improve. Yeah, I hear it. For, you're right. From every side of the political spectrum and from every parent in every community, I hear this real frustration. And so I think that is that is universal. And I do think that is the mayor's job to be able to use the public platform. I mean, part of being the mayor is you are the highest profile leader in the city and people look to you for guidance. And school board elections, as we know, are off-year elections with low visibility. People barely pay attention. They often don't know who their school board member is. Uh, and so it's hard to get visibility and accountability into those roles. And so I do think it's the role of the mayor to 
to be able to, to step in and say, we got to support teachers and principals to make sure this district is run more efficiently. And that means, you know, advocating for candidates that we think can be real adults to help manage a billion dollar budget and a, and a big organization and who can give a superintendent the ability to lead. You know, oftentimes what we've seen is superintendents have had to spend so much time managing the board on their pet projects that it's harder for them to manage the actual district. Uh, and that's that's what their job should be. Um, and so we don't want board members that are getting in the way of the superintendent. We want board members who understand how governance works, which is you hire a CEO, let them do the job, um, and let them run their own teams. And I think that's what you feel as teachers and principals and district leaders who don't feel like they have enough time to do the jobs that they want to do. So you'll be willing to call them out? I am, yep. Mike Johnston joining us here in studio, candidate for mayor of Denver. Just one more thing on the education piece, um, mental health. Uh, I've had and been public about my own struggles in the past with mental health and with suicidal issues and so forth. I was went through treatment for seven years um, in 2018, was able to get off my meds, and I've been on a, a very good track ever since. So mental health is near and dear to my heart, but I also value parental involvement mm -hmm. and the importance of engaging parents in their kids' lives. And I'm very concerned, for example, about legislation that is before the um, the legislature. Of course, this isn't a legislative matter that you would address, but uh, there is a, a House bill, I think 1003, that would provide for the mental health assessment and allow students to opt out uh, or to opt in even if their parents opt them out. Uh, there are a lot of concerns that I've heard from parents all around over the the sense that when it comes to mental health, they need to be involved in their kids' situations and circumstances and not be circumvented. How do you view the role of addressing mental health in schools, as you're talking about, but also making sure that parents aren't pushed aside. Uh, yeah, I first want to say how grateful I am for your leadership on this, because mm -hmm. how important it is for it to be normalized for people that mental health is part of what we do. And for Absolutely. leaders and listeners on your show are lucky to have that exposure, because for too long, uh, someone that's looked up to you like you would never have shared something like that. And so I think that's really important. Thank you. Um, yeah. uh, and so and the second is, yeah, I'm learning this with my own kids is, is there are both, you know, things that they don't want to come to me about anymore, mm -hmm. which breaks my heart. But I guess that they tell me that's called adolescence. Um, True. Uh, but there and so there are other adults they want in their lives and there is a point at which for us to make progress with them the whole family needs to be involved you know and so uh, I, I think that we want to do both things I want my kids to have other adults they can go to maybe the first time that they have an incident if that incident persists and they need ongoing support and intervention, I do think it's right at some point for the parents to be uh, involved. And that's one of the things I would do at these school-based health centers is a lot of times, maybe there's a counselor, but a kid can only see the counselor one time and that issue doesn't get resolved. To get that issue treated in a real way, you're eventually often going to have to get the family involved anyways. It might involve uh, trauma or a crisis that's happening in the home, and so there might need to be parents involved so they can get engaged. So you want to be able to not just have that first contact with the mental health support, but you want to be able to have that support reach outside of the school and engage the families because that's usually you know the biggest driver for kids of their sources of anxiety or struggle and so uh, I think that is something you want to be collaborative as as the service expands yeah that one thing you may not know in school is whether or not a kid is already receiving therapeutic services outside of school and then mm -hmm. sometimes you put them into in school and they're the, the they're unaware uh, the staff that this is actually something that they're already getting and then there's there's issues that can come about and if you have parental involvement 
that and ensure that I think that helps to address some of those issues of concern for sure. Um, Mike Johnston, candidate for mayor. I want to ask you about the Fair Elections Fund. You're participating in uh, this program. I've been very critical of it. Uh, just put this right sure. out there. Um, and of course, it is a nine to one match for those who are unfamiliar for donations up to fifty dollars if you participate in the program and agree to some particular strings attached, if you will. Um, but that could turn a fifty dollar donation into five hundred dollars. Um, I have deep concerns about how you have a taxpayer money that can go towards a variety of different possible expenses. Uh, there's one candidate in the race who spent over $20,000 on an attorney who in part went after a small organization, uh, Safe and Clean Denver, that was critical of her. This would be Leslie Herod. Um, about issues of, of safety in, in Denver and so forth, and she went after mm-hmm. them hiring this attorney um, in in uh, through the process of saying campaign finance violations, and they ended up getting fined. Uh, that sort of instance troubles me when you look at taxpayer dollars and how they can go in terms of these expenditures and people, of course, being told – your taxpayer dollars have to support candidates you don't necessarily want to support. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also think it does advantage candidates such as yourself who have more experience, connections, and so forth that you can tap into broader donor bases, getting some people who are um, not as connected to think, oh, I can run for mayor and I can get this money. And then you end up with some candidates who maybe just not have any sort of viability. Um, so with those just a few of the criticisms yeah. in mind. Why are you taking fair elections fund money, and um, uh, what do you think is the is the virtue of it? Yeah, I understand. I think those are some fair criticisms in terms of the potential uses of taxpayer dollars that people, you know, if some people might pay themselves on their own campaign. I, I understand those risks. Mm-hmm. I think the other side of it is. It is a very uh, empowering structure for small dollar donors and for for voters. I think in traditional campaigns, a lot of time is spent cultivating the very wealthiest donors who can write the largest checks. And uh, I took the fair election funds because it, it fundamentally changes the way politics is driven, which is, you know, we do two or three events a night every night, and none of them are fundraisers. None of them are ticketed. You got to pay to come in. We expect you to give. It's literally just come and meet Mike. Come sit for 30 minutes, have a conversation, ask questions, kick the tires. If you don't want to vote for me, no problem. If you do want to vote for me, great. And if you want to vote for me and you want to give 25 bucks, that's suddenly 250 bucks. Um, And so what I like about it is, you know, you can have a a waitress or you can have a school teacher who writes a $50 check. And that's the same as the CEO who writes a $500 check. And so I think that ability to activate and elevate the voices of regular voters, I think, has been effective. Um, I obviously wasn't a part of voting for the program or approving it. Um, I just was a candidate to engage in it. And I do think it has really driven the campaigns to be much more grassroots. I think one thing we'll have to answer after this race is, yeah, it does mean that there are far more candidates who run and far more candidates who can raise resources because it used to be raising resources was one of the gating factors to your ability to be viable. Uh, at, you know, at, at nine to one matches, you have a lot of people that can raise more money. But I think it's put a diverse set of voices in the race that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Do you think there should be more? Or uh, watchdog provisions on the expenditure side to at least monitor how money is being spent by candidates who are receiving these funds. I mean, we provide very comprehensive oversight into everything we spend, and that's why I don't I don't spend a dollar. I don't pay for a parking meter, my you know, out of the funds. I don't pay for a meal. I don't do any of those things. Um, so I think I think right now our reporting is quite 
clear. But yeah, I think voters should look at it this time, look at all the money that was spent. I mean, we're only going to spend probably less than half of the total city allocation. And so it's not going to be uh, overdrawn, even with 17 candidates. Um, but yeah, I think we should take a close look at this after the race is over. And if there are ways to improve it, I'd be certainly open to that. Mike Johnston, candidate for mayor. We're, we're going long, but I want to ask about one other issue and then give you a final opportunity to talk. Uh, and that is affordable housing. We started on the issue of homelessness. Let's wrap up with the issue of a ho- affordable housing, especially given you mentioned it earlier as one of the things that you were proud of, the repeal of the Gallagher Amendment. Sure, it provides relief to businesses, but also tax increase potential for homeowners. So with that in mind, um, how would you address affordability of housing for folks. Yeah, I think the reason why this is so important is what's missed sometimes in the conversation about affordable housing is people think it's about, you know, folks who are unhoused or people that are unemployed. And what we're talking about when we're talking about affordable housing is, you know, how do you support the morale of the officers who are working in this city? You know, one of the things you do is you make sure they can afford to live in the city. You know, it used to be back in the day that police officers were required by law to live in the city and county of Denver. More than 80% of them don't anymore, and often it's because they can't afford to live in the city. And so what I would do is uh, how do you create a market based approach that can partner with the market to make it successful rather than assuming that the public entities can solve this entirely. And so what we did in Prop 123 is you put dollars into CHAFA, which is the Housing and Financing Authority. They work very well with private sector partners. And you allow them to partner with nonprofit developers or for-profit developers or, you know, churches or schools or whoever want to build housing to build housing that remains permanently affordable. So what that means is if you're a cop, uh, you never pay more than 30% of your income to rent. So if you're making, you know, if you're first-year teacher making $40,000 a year, you wouldn't have to pay more than $1,000 a month unless your rent went up. I'm sorry, unless your income went up. If your income goes up, you can pay more. If it doesn't, you you're, don't have to have the risk that in a year some out-of-state investor is going to come buy your building and jack up all the rents, $300. Uh, we got a lot of seniors living on fixed incomes at rental properties that are getting 10, 15, 20% increases a year and can't do that. This would allow you to have units that stay affordable without putting in place things like rent control that I think haven't worked. And so there is a way. I, I would build 25,000 more permanently affordable units in the city so that teachers, nurses, firefighters, cops can actually afford to live in the city. You know, they say about San Francisco uh, that it's described now as the childless city because no one who has kids can afford to live in that city. Mm -hmm. And if you did, you might not want to raise them in that kind of city because of the issues around public safety. And so what we want to do is make this a city where people that work and serve the city can still afford to live here, and that's what I do. Uh, A lot of thoughts that come to my mind, but we are out of time here. So um, I I just want to note not just you it's not just you who thinks that rent control hasn't worked all the academic literature demonstrates quite clearly that rent control hasn't never worked and it never will work nothing is going to change that reality but in lieu of a further discussion uh, mike johnston where could people go to learn more about your campaign and uh, what's the final word for the audience as you are running for mayor and uh, ballots? Is it week, two weeks away? Yeah, two weeks till wow. ballots drop. Yeah, I'd love to have you learn more. My website's MikeJohnstonForMayor.com. I think you'll find I'm the only one who's put out comprehensive policies on all these topics and showed exactly what they cost and how they're going to be paid for and that they don't require any new taxes. I think for me, the voters of Denver have been very generous and investing a lot of tax dollars into the city. The city should be able to solve these problems without new taxes. Um, and I think right now we're looking for who is a person that is going to be able to be uh, uh, a thoughtful centrist who can pull people together from both sides, who can actually run a city with 11,000 employees and really make sure we deliver results for the people that they deserve. And I think uh, my leadership as a CEO, my leadership as a school principal, my leadership in the state Senate means I've both done public work before, I've done policy, and I've, al- I've also been an outside private sector leader. Uh, and I think 
think I'm the right person to leave the city in a moment where we got a lot to get done and would love people's help. One more time, that website? It's MikeJohnstonForMayor.com, and it's actually spelled out F-O-R because I'm a teacher. I couldn't do the number four. <laughs> you know, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> I can't do that either. Uh, Mike Johnston, vying to be Denver's next mayor. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with a final couple of minutes of this hour, and then Keith Noble's at the top on Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year later. Keep it right here, the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, Denver's local talk leader, News Talk, 710 KNUS. I'm trying. We're back on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, winding down this hour with a little Jimmy Reed. We're so tight, though, before the break that we won't really get into his harmonica playing, gosh darn it. As we pay tribute to the great OG blues harmonica players, specifically on this, the last Saturday of Black History Month, the black blues harmonica players that pioneered that great instrument. As we continue on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, by the way, I'm hearing multiple texts that we have old CBS News. I don't know why we'll put in a note. Just want to let you know I'm seeing the text now, and we'll make sure that folks who need to know are in the know. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in for yours truly, always, every Saturday, Jimmy Sangenberger Show. News Talk 710 KNUS, Keith Nobles on the Russian invasion of Ukraine a year later. Up next. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.